0: What do you think one thing people should know about World War One in Eastern Europe that most people don't know?
1: That's easy. I think that Eastern that World War I was fought in Eastern Europe as well as Western Europe. But there's a whole Eastern Front that was quite bloody, quite spectacular, quite difficult, quite interesting, and maybe more important than the West. I mean, if, if you're a – this is the War Books podcast. There's so much about the Western Front. But there's a whole other – War in the East, and in the history of the war, in the history of the world, that's what ends the Russian Empire, that war, the Eastern War, the Russian defeat there, that's what ends the Austro-Hungarian Empire, even though no one invades Austro-Hungary, not, no, no foreign soldiers step on Austro-Hungarian soil, but they get exhausted.
0: Hi everyone, this is AJ Woodhams, host of the War Books podcast, where I interview today's best authors writing about war related topics. Today I am really excited to have on Jacob Mikanowski for his new book, Goodbye Eastern Europe An Intimate History of a Divided Land. Jacob is a historian, a freelance journalist, and a critic. His writing has appeared in The Atlantic, Aeon, Cabinet, The Chronicle of Higher Education, The Guardian, the New York Times, NewYorker.com, The Point, The Owl, Atlas Obscura. Is it owl or owl, Jacob? I think owl. Oh, but okay. it's defunct, it's so it's, it's right. an inner graveyard now. All, all right. Well, your writing's been there. And also the Los Angeles Review of Books. Um, how are you doing today, Jacob? Great. Great to be with you, AJ. Yeah. Thanks for for joining me. And we, we were talking a little bit about this before before we went went. We, before we started recording, so your book "Goodbye Eastern Europe," not exa- its not like a a war book per se. But you know, I, I wanted to have you on because, like your your book, Eastern Europe is the history of Eastern Europe is so closely tied to war. I mean, you do have a picture of a tank uh, on the cover of the book, so you know, war factors very prominently into this story that you tell. And I I think you did a very good job with this book especially given the relevance right now with, obviously, um, uh, Russia and Ukraine. But yeah, excited to dive in. Um, first, you know, maybe in your own words, a question I like to ask authors on this show, could you just tell us what is your book about? Yeah,
1: great to be with you. And it's actually pretty, pretty easy in broad strokes. It's a comprehensive history of Eastern Europe. It's my take on a comprehensive history of Eastern Europe. So, um, everything, the story of Eastern Europe from the dawn of written history, even a little bit before then, up to more or less the present, in a thematic presentation and kind of guided by what I see as the big themes structuring Eastern European history. So, it's not, a narrative, it's not a strict narrative of one thing happening or another. It's sort of a thematic presentation where I think are the biggest cultural. Principles and shared experiences in Eastern European history, and there's a fair amount of my own family history woven through it as a kind of guardrail, you could say, or or, you know, crumb trail to give. It's not a family history, but there are bits of family history, especially as you come into the twentieth, nineteenth, and twentieth century. Uh, I'm from a mixed Polish Jewish family, Polish Catholic Polish Jewish that had turbulent time in the twentieth century, especially. And some of those stories are woven in to make it kind of a more personal tale. So hope, the hope is that um, for novices and for amateurs and for people who just with with an interest, they can get start this book, read from one in the end, and have a picture of Eastern Europe as a shared space, shared space of cultural affinities, not a uniform space, but one with a lot of similar similar principles of society and culture and then a kind of a, a more of a narrative of the 20th century that goes runs you through from 1900 to present with a kind of the major blocks of, um, of things that the region had in common that suffered or endured in common uh, told through kind of miniature stories and in individual people. So it's much more anecdotes and personal stories and individuals stories not my personal, but individuals uh, than it is. High politics. There's a kind of dusting or outline of high politics. You get the major rulers, you get major wars, but it's not a strict narrative history of that. It's more history of experience, uh, history of lived, um, lived suffering, lived, lived joy sometimes.
0: So the the title of your book is "Goodbye Eastern Europe." Explain that. Why why
1: goodbye Eastern Europe? It's a little bit ironic. It's a little bit of a. It Actually, works I think on a couple of levels. One comes from kind of my life, and I think the the life of my generation. I'm I'm forty. Uh, the generation that uh, kind of the last generation that saw socialism. I remember the eighties. Go to Poland in the eighties. The like world of uh, you used to go to Poland. You used to go to Eastern Europe. It was a crossing a civilizational divide. You would go, that's a really foreign place, especially. I think Poland, Romania, some of the countries that had a really like really tough time economically in the 80s. You were crossing from um you going to a place where, where the stores had no food, where the air smelled like coal, like brown lignite, where things just were just like in a total standstill of uh, kind of the late summer of state socialism. And he felt like a real there was a whole lot of literature series called The Other Europe, and it felt like the other Europe. The Eastern Europe was this extremely foreign place, almost civilizationally, and that sense of difference, an artificial sense of difference created by the Eastern Bloc, or the Warsaw Pact, or however you want to describe that, has, has vanished in my lifetime, and people have tried to shed the label Eastern Europe as much as possible, especially at the level of countries, at the level of diplomacy. Anyone who can has tried to rebrand and escape what's seen as a, as a pretty, you know, negative the negative connotations of Eastern Europe. So the, the Baltics are now trying to be the Nordic zone. My part of the world, Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary that I studied in graduate school has kind of moved, called South Central Europe. And the Balkans will rebrand themselves differently. The Eastern Adriatic, the Black Sea, uh, just Mediterranean kind of paper over that. So people are fleeing from Eastern Europe as an idea. When I started the book, I actually felt like there was a lot less, there wasn't much interest academically in Eastern Europe. Uh, I was kind of stuck in grad school late years, and then like there was just not funding was vanishing, interest was vanishing. Publishers were. Isn't that crazy publishing. how times can change? Just yeah, so, so it, it flipped crick. back completely. Yeah. Uh, but it was extremely like everyone had got all these countries had gotten into the EU in 2010 and 2013. You know, I had memories of how relevant and how interesting it was to people in the 80s, even the early 90s, and it was just just vanished. But then there's a deeper meaning, I think, to the to the title. The book is kind of split into two parts, two big parts. One is about the religious and political heritage of Eastern Europe up to 1900, and the other is 1900 and forward. And what I try to do in that first half is say, as much as Eastern Europe is a kind of construct imposed from outside, you know, like it's my lifetime, a description created by or a shared community that the thing that I was holding together was was Soviet occupation or Soviet influence, or, uh, that there is a deeper unity that's been ignored, that's been forgotten, that was destroyed in a way, that there is something actually distinctive to Eastern Europe. And I try to argue that it is historically, socially and culturally different from Western Europe on the one side, Russia and, and the kind of bigger Eurasian world on the other, mm-hmm. that there's a kind of diversity that existed Woven through everywhere, kind of a fractal diversity that you can find in every village. This zone of maximum diversity, multiple diversity. It's very different from anything you would find in, in France or Spain or even Russia or or uh, maybe even uh, China. In this kind of zone, this belt from running from Estonia down to Albania, and I try to say, and that's a world that um, as, as someone who kind of belongs to a. Eastern European minority and very small minority point of Polish Jews that really appeals to me and really is important to me that heritage of diversity, this world that somehow did hold together for a long time, at least until, at least until world war two, this multiple plural world. That's really the world of my grandparents and their parents. And so I was saying goodbye to that uh, kind of deeper past I can call it a ramshackle utopia at one point should get into what that means I think that might be an oxymoron but that world I'm also saying goodbye
0: to you know that's that's so interesting what you say about escaping the label of eastern european so my family is we're like we're we're part english then like some german and like a lot of east european and 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 polish And we did a, me and my brother did like a, um, uh, one of those ancestry like Mm -hmm. tests or whatever. And like my whole life, like my family had kind of the identity of like being like coming from like England, like being an English family. And we do have, the last name is, is an English last name, but we did this ancestry test and we're actually mostly Eastern European. Um, you know, so we found out, but. The family still doesn't, it's still like, there seems to be much more Western European recognition than Eastern European recognition. So I thought that's, that's very interesting that you say that. Maybe before we really dive into the history of Eastern Europe, for the audience, could you define what is Eastern Europe? What are those boundaries?
1: I can, and and uh, with the caveat that this is my definition. This is contested terrain, even more contested since the Ukraine war. So you have a lot of a lot of struggling over what is Eastern Europe, what is Central Europe. I have a big tent definition of Eastern Europe, uh, although not the biggest tent. Political scientists have the biggest tent, but my my definition of Eastern Europe is everything between Germany on one side, Germany the West, Russia. I really mean Russia not the Soviet Union, but, but historical Muscovy, Russia, Russian-speaking core land, to the east and north-south Estonia, to Albania. I would actually put in northern Greece, but I, we're quibbling. We can quibble on the borders. I think there's a case to be made for Finland kind of being half in, half out. I don't actually put it in. So it's that that world of maximum diversity in minimum space. That's the Kondera line. And of small states with difficult fates, of, of countries that are nation states that are small, small relative to their neighbors, embattled, have a sovereignty that's been challenged multiple times, have a, have a discontinuous record of, of independence. So Ukraine's a big country by, by certainly by European standards. Huge by European standards, but it's small relative to Russia and it is threatened by Russia and has had a brief history of independence. So and, and every other country, I think it's I think it's the biggest in Eastern Europe. So every other country has that sense of fragility, of political, you know, extinction, disappearance is always possible. In a way that it's not really going to be with a France or a, even a Sweden or a Russia. You know, geopolitical threat it might be a reality for those countries, but vanishing from the map much less so.
0: Yeah. And it's very easy to, you're absolutely right with, so it's it's easy to forget, and I was reminded this um, from your book, but just thinking about Poland, you know, Poland at one point would just like, didn't exist, like the, the boundaries of the country. And then, but then it was a country again, but then like part of that country was taken by uh, the Soviet Union, and then part was taken by Germany. And uh, it's it's easy to forget how recent a lot of the borders in Eastern Europe have changed, um, as opposed to somewhere like Western Europe. I'm I'm trying to think of like what country in Western Europe is maybe I guess like we uh, would be like Irish independence maybe. I don't even it's, know when that it's true. that was. Alsace flipped
1: hands, changed hands, but um yeah, Poland didn't exist for 123 years, and then it. Would- essentially vanished again from 39 to 45. It did vanish. So my grandparents' lifetime, the partitions are very much, as a kid, little kid, I was really, I was, I was into Polish history as, as a kid. I grew up in America, but I was going to school in Poland. I was so obsessed with the partitions. I'm like, how could they do that to us? They just carved us up like a dinner plate. And uh, and I wasn't alone. Like you, you really, once you identify, you do fixate with these moments of historical loss, hungry, vanished, Mostly for uh, well, it depends on how you look at Hungary, but for hundreds of years, Serbia the same thing. You have these these wounds that are that become very formative to identity. Whereas you know, does the U.S. really doesn't have anything comparable? Yeah, but I guess Ireland being conquered by the by the English, in the 12th yeah. century. That...
0: Well, let's go all the way back to we'll go back to Roman times, but mm-hmm. if you want to go back earlier, we can do that too. What, so what does Eastern Europe look like during like, Roman times? You write that it was actually very sparsely populated, a lot of wilderness, uh, that the writings that, that came out of that region at the time were people talking about how like, they would go days without like seeing a person. But what, was, what was Eastern Europe like, say, during the Roman times?
1: You know, I'll say, I wish we knew. I wish we knew more. Because the Romans didn't really care that much. The people in Eastern Europe didn't write. The Romans were aware that there was a lot out there. That, you know, they were up to the Danube. And then past that, they made some forays. For a while, they controlled most of what's now Romania. And then past that, they knew that there was a lot of amber. It's a very cool material, very light, very beautiful. And the tons of it come, came from somewhere up there. And beyond that, they had some kind of Vague understanding of of, of tribal names, of of nomadic peoples that were somewhere. And beyond that, they didn't know. They didn't leave records. They had traders going up there. They had slavers going up there. Clearly, slaves were being uh, sent down from there. We actually have archaeological evidence of of Roman slaving happening in Poland and the Baltics. They had amber trading. But they didn't really write much about it. They had very few details. And so we have to go on archaeology and inference. Uh, it was the contrast to the Roman Empire was, was quite stark. There weren't, uh, as far as we know, any there's no writing. We don't think there were very large political units, but it's so when people did go there, like Marcus Aurelius went to Slovakia spent a spent a couple couple winters there fighting the area around Slovakia so, Slova, so modern Slovakia, Austria, Hungary, those fighting the Macromantic wars. Writes a lot while he's there. Writes nothing about what's happening around him. Writes all internally. Writes about his the struggles of his soul. Writes in this, you know, stoic reflections that we call the meditations. And essentially says nothing about what's around him. So we don't really know. We know it was just plenty of forest. Uh, that forest lasted into the 17th and 18th century. Uh, it it remained underpopulated compared to the West, and compared to the South. It remained underdeveloped for the West and the South. That's why I'm uh, Certain species that went extinct in Europe, in Western Europe, survived in Eastern Europe for much longer. The wolf, the beaver, they still live there. And the aurochs, if you know what an aurochs is, the the mega, it's the wild ancestor of the cow, a giant, like a Volkswagen-sized cow. And they survived in the 17th century. So uh, the Polish kings kept them in their game reserves and really actually tried to save them. They, They died of disease, ultimately. They tried to preserve these incredible animals that went extinct but Pol- the Eastern Europe was wild enough, had enough wild space to preserve some of that. But um, you know, so that's that's the best sketch I can give you. A lot of it what's, is no question mark.
0: What's like the first writing that we get um, with somebody traveling to Eastern Europe and writing about who's there and and what things are like and 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 the people that 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 he
1: or she sees sees around them. Depends. On what you mean by Eastern Europe depends on what you mean by writing. I'm and thinking about is, a, yeah.
0: a part in your book. I think it was actually a Jewish explorer yeah. um, who writes about um, being in Eastern Europe and just finding basically the forest. Who I, I'm not sure if you, you you probably do name this person uh, and the name
1: escapes me. I think it's Yakub. Like is it the Arabic version of my name? Okay. I think of Tortosa.
0: <laughs> okay.
1: There's a, there's a Muslim traveler and a Jewish traveler and I't want to get them confused but in the in the tenth century action kind of heats up in, in Eastern Europe especially in my part of Eastern Europe, Bohemia, Poland Scholovakia and the action there's there's real trade happening and most of that some of that trade is furs, and we now are kind of realizing that the dominant part of that trade is slaves. There's an incredible demand in the Muslim world, which is the most advanced economically, civilizationally, socially part of the world, especially the kind of Western Eurasian part of the world for slaves, for labor. And they have a ton of silver, hard currency, huge mines in Iran. And there's this real boom of slaves. And so the word slave comes from Slav. Slav, slave. Slaves were Slavs. Slavs were being imported, exported from uh, what's, what's now the Slavic world. And you have the first literate witnesses are traders, travelers, Muslim and Jewish, but Jewish from the Muslim world, Jewish from Granada, and Muslim from Tortosa, right, might have those switched. And this is around 960, 950, 960. And they start going to check out these trading hubs. Uh, They go to Prague, the, the traveler you're thinking of, and sees, you know, crosses, goes for a week without seeing anything sees forts made out of timber, timber palisades, sees uh, what becomes the king of Poland, then a prince, a Jewish traveler is the first witness to the pre-Christian, the very end of pagan uh, Poland, Poland pagan. uh. And so that's the kind of the first more expressive, more detailed witness that we have after but the Romans leave almost nothing. So this is the first kind of more detailed. There's some, there's a little bit, you could point to a little bit earlier, Cyril and Methodius. I don't want to, you know, quibble too much. There, there are Christian witnesses, but the, the deeper kind of travel reflection, that's the 10th century. And that's the kind of height of the slave trade.
0: So one, I was very fascinated to learn that Prague was a slave trading hub. Mm -hmm. um, Something that I had never heard before. Just to give us, maybe a sliver in time, look at warfare. What around, what was warfare like around this time? Um, how was war being waged? Who is fighting who? You know, maybe what types of weapons are they using and how violent are, are we're talking around the 10th century, how violent are things right now?
1: Yeah, it, there was, so there's this commercial activity coming from the South, all this great Iranian silver Carried by um Muslim and Jewish merchants up north, get human cargo, and then you need people to round up, and uh, you need you need experts in violence on the other side. You need slavers. You need a uh, bodyguards, and that's kind of the the probably the genesis of, of most Eastern European states, especially the Bohemia, becomes Czech land. Poland, not the official this is not the history I grew up with, incidentally. This is more comes from archaeology and comes from piecing together the world of slave trade. Because the stories that the medieval chroniclers told are very different. They did not like this the the idea that these dynasties come from, you know, essentially selling their own people or selling very relative nearby people, is a very unattractive story. So that was pretty buried. But the well, state like yeah. To this
0: day not I had no idea about that history. Um so still not a narrative that it
1: it seems to get it actually it, yeah it's not really the narrative it's taught, it's taught it's It's now kind of revisionist medievalists especially in Poland and, and Czech Republic have done a lot to do it but it hasn't because it's not part of the written story it's part of the archaeological story but the, the experts in violence in the north were the Vikings were the northmen they're the ones who through basically military prowess could connect the world the world of the of the Slavic villages to the world of the the Arab Emporia, uh, so that's where you get Russia comes out of this. Comes out of the river trade and slaves, mostly sweet, Swedish Vikings, Swedish. I'm going to put Vikings in quotes because of the problems around the nomenclature of Viking, but that is kind of what you should picture: uh, taking people down the the, the Dnieper, the Dniester, down to the Black Sea, and then similar groups running in the same trade over the the Carpathians from, from Krakow over the mountains to Prague. And then from there west to Venice, which is a big slave trading emporium, out to uh, the rest of the Frankish empire, out to uh, the Emirate of Cordoba. So um, so they actually, they were building a highway north of, north from Warsaw. A lot of the great archeological discoveries, a lot has been happened, a ton has been discovered in the last 20 years. In Europe, in Eastern Europe, because of the uh the EU, and it has one of the most ambitious archaeological programs. By accident, is there's all this money to road construction. You build big roads, big highways, which we really needed in Eastern Europe. You discover stuff in the ground. So they're building a highway north of uh north of Warsaw. And they found this big cemetery, clearly not Christian from the way the uh, bodies were placed. Essentially, of this um. Mixed, probably mostly northern, mostly Viking bodyguard of the early Polish dukes, but mixed with people. With, they did DNA work on it. They did sourcing the different implements. There are people from Kazaria from Central Asia. There are people from Western swords from Western Europe. So you have a kind of motley crew of um, rough and rowdy men. You know, people people who found found a living in a in what was a brutal trade. And, uh, and people who could organize that probably intermarried locally or were local, but had to, had to find reinforcements. This is a story state formation. Something similar happened in North Africa later in, in the Northern, the Sahel, this kind of slave trade turning into bigger states, defending themselves, then taking control of this trade, then organizing something out of that, then becoming Christian or Muslim uh, in Africa. And it had been turning the states from that. So that's, it's still sort of a murky story because it was not written.
0: Yeah. It's well, it, to but, piece it, together. It, but it seems like a lot of the fighting at this time was around the slave trade, which is in Europe to me is wild to think about. But because you do, you do hear about, you know, I've, I've heard a lot about the North African slave trade. hmm and then obviously like the transatlantic slave trade but that's i guess that's just like something that, that really stuck out to me i'm curious about uh, religion in in this part of the world and i was wondering if you could if you could maybe walk us through well first i was very surprised to learn that eastern europe up until like the 14th century there was still like pagan leaders that were in the area, um, which seems so that also seems a little wild because like Europe was sending like crusades out mm-hmm. to to other parts of the world yet like Europe hadn't been fully Christianized talk about religion in in Eastern Europe um, historically and in the different groups that are in the region and specifically i'm I'm interested in in Judaism, but um, if you could talk about maybe the different types of religious groups that are in the area first.
1: So Eastern Eastern Europe really becomes Europe's great kind of reservoir of religious diversity, especially as it actually kind of decreases progressively in Western Europe over the course of the middle ages. We know about Andalusia and the kind of idea of beautiful Muslim Spain being this wonderful melting pot of Muslim Christian and Jew. And that really was true, but with some caveats that historians have added, but that g- progressively goes away. And you kind of culminating in 1492 when Aragon and the steel unify uh, Ferdinand and Isabella and what they do, first thing they do, well, they, they send Columbus out to the new, to, to somewhere, I don't know where they're sending him. And they expel Spain's, they conquer Spain's last remaining Muslim kingdom and they expel the peninsula's Jews. And that, that's the culmination of a process that has been happening in Western Europe for like 300, 400 years. England expelled its Jews in the 12th century. France expelled its Jews at the end of the, or the, the start of the 14th century, which expelled them a couple times. German states and cities are expelling their Jews and readmitting them and expelling them. But Jews are being driven out of Western Europe. Muslims are being driven out of Southern Europe. And But they find refuge, especially Jews, in Eastern Europe, which is underdeveloped. Which is underpopulated, which is under-commercialized, and so for the, the rulers there see Jews as a real resource to connect, you know, pre-modern world, most, most, most industries either is agricultural. have to connect that world to the bigger world of trade. You need people who are cosmopolitan who move around, and uh, so they start inviting Jews in groups or individually to settle and it becomes the real kind of arc kind of Noah's arc of European Jewish life, especially in Poland, and Lithuania. And there's also a Muslim presence in kind of two different forms. One is these kind of refugees from the, the, the conflicts following Genghis Khan. Uh, there are Muslim nomads, nomadic groups. They stopped being nomadic, but from the Turkic Muslims, Settle in Poland-Lithuania, settle in Belarus and Lithuania, and to pledge to fight for the king. To settle in Hungary too, and become um, military kind of military frontiersmen, frontier guards. And then there's the Ottoman Empire pushing in and creating, making half of Eastern Europe really, putting it under Muslim rule and increasing converting a lot of Eastern Europeans, people in the Balkans to Islam. So you have those three religions. And then paganism lasts longer in Eastern Europe than it does ever anywhere else in, in Europe. Uh, it's the last, on one hand, Poland, Bohemia, Hungary, all Christianized around the year 1000, same as Scandinavia. But then there's this giant forgotten country, essentially, Lithuania, which is not the little Lithuania we know about. kind of inherits that. But the Lithuania of the Middle Ages is a huge country that that has most of Belarus, as part of its territory, Chunkalapia, large part of Ukraine, and is a proudly pagan, defiantly pagan state that's fighting these German crusaders. And the more they fight the German crusaders, the more proudly pagan they become, and the more they fight these, um, these encroaching, actual crusading order, the Teutonic Knights, the more they, re- they organize in response and become much more like a medieval European kingdom, in structure, in people, they have dukes, they have organization, they have actually a pretty good army, but everyone's pagan. In, 14, in like 1375, you know, the Renaissance is getting going, Petrarch's are going, they're having pagan burials, they're having pagan priests, they, are, they actually have Christians fighting with them, they have Christians in their orbit. But the rulers are all defiantly, defiantly pagan, and, it, and it's a mar- it's a dynastic marriage with Poland well, that hell. brings them into the Christian fold very exciting how yeah
0: how, i like it how much of the, the fighting at this time is just fighting against christianity fighting against these these i don't know if they're not crusaders but well they are when
1: won- I mean, they're crusaders the knight's are a crusading order they started in oh, the okay. in the holy land and they got they had a great time fighting muslims and they're like well what if we have Mus- we have we have our own Infidels close to home, uh, just a boat ride away, and so they are a crusading order. They are mo- they are warrior monks who do not marry, mostly German, but they had French and English recruits, and uh, there were there were crusades. and there, There's a great book called The Northern Crusades, like Eric Christensen. The Swedes also ran crusades in in Finland and in Estonia, and the German crusading order was like we need to we need to convert these people. And these people are very well armed and very good fighters. So we're gonna do it with uh old, old phrase of Charlemagne's with tongues of, of steel, tongues of iron. We're gonna we're gonna if we don't they don't convert, we'll just cut their heads off until they start converting. And it is that crusader warfare, crusading warfare that that people organize in response to.
0: Now do they do they remain is, does paganism stay around for so long because maybe the fighters are so fierce, or is it just because this is not the last place that that the crusaders came to, or maybe okay. a little bit of both?
1: A little bit of both because actually they're him, They have they have Christians also to their to their east. Um, Novgorod, the Russian principalities are all, are all Orthodox Christian. They it because they have put up a good fight, and I think that that kind of crusading warfare which is actually quite brutal, has its own kind of brutal response. You know, it creates, it forces people who were disunified to unify in response and forces you to have an identity. You know, it's, you know the encroachment strengthens that oppositional identity.
0: Now, when um, you say it was quite brutal, not to, not to make this into an R-rated conversation, mm-hmm. but what do you mean exactly?
1: That's an anecdote I had to cut from the book because I thought was too distasteful, a group of pagan fighters captured some some knights, and the knights were always better armored. They actually had armor, but they could they could be picked off kind of through guerrilla war and pick them off, and uh, and they had burned villages, etc. So to punish them, they gonna, sensitive listeners should skip ahead fifteen to thirty seconds. But they cut open their stomachs, took out their um, intestines, nailed them to a tree, and then had them walk it walk around it they like spilled out their guts now that, that that really happened might be propaganda but that's a kind of warfare of extraordinary cruelty guerrilla warfare lasting a century plus extraordinary acts of cruelty to like frighten and this way that's really brutal warfare
0: yeah that's and well you, you know nice. i'm while we're on the subject of of religion and thinking about religious violence i remember a few stories that uh, you write in your book about violence against jews in the region mm-hmm. now i'm curious actually so this is a, a two-part question how how jews were received by the population you talked about you know they're they're being expelled from all these other western european countries i'm curious if they were if they were welcomed by most people when they arrived in eastern europe and then maybe talk about some of the violence uh, against jews and this is going to be like a big time period, but leading up to World War II.
1: That's a big question. Also, were they really welcomed in Jewish folk tale, in Jewish folk memory? The very woods welcomed them. It's a story that that they came to Poland, and 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 they heard a voice saying, "This is Pauline in in Hebrew. This is this is stay here," essentially. It's a, it's a play on words, but that it's, and they, they went into the woods and they found tracted of the Gemara, Jewish law, written, carved into the bark of trees. Probably not. But they felt like the actual woods were welcoming them. In a way, that was true because there was this space. It wasn't that people were welcoming them exactly. It's that there was open space. You have to imagine kind of a, a frontier environment, especially as you push east into Eastern Europe and push north into Eastern Europe of there being space to settle. And so you could establish communities, establish towns, establish Jewish majority towns as things develop. And, uh, you know, there's actually a historical mystery about that. There's so many Jews eventually in, in what was Poland, Lithuania, in that area by like 1900, that it's hard for demographers to work out how they could be, there could be so many starting from what seemed to be so few in the Middle Ages. That either more people arrived in the Middle Ages, or the growth rate was just extraordinary. So people did find a, a real safe haven there, and but that was punctuated by, by terrible moments of violence. Sixteenth, seventeenth century. People were describing Jewish writers were describing Poland Lithuania as the the, actually. Christian writers would call it the paradises. Judeorum, the paradise of the Jews. Jews would also describe it as a welcoming place. And that security was really shattered in the mid 17th century in a, a spectacular civil war that becomes a kind of multipolar war starting in 1648, the uh, Khmelnytsky Rebellion. So if, probably, if you grew up on Polish historical fiction, there's a guy named Henrik Sienkiewicz who writes this cycle of, of novels that everyone reads. They're very popular. And I grew up reading them, like 9, 10, 11. They're like, what's the equivalent? Game of, like, uh, Tolkien, maybe. like exactly right. everyone, you know that. So our Tolkien is this historical fiction set in the mid-17th century. These quite brutal wars that kind of end the Polish golden age, too. And the first one of them is this big Cossack rebellion. Because in now Western Ukraine was then part of this larger Polish-Lithuanian state. And religiously, that was complicated because the Polish-Lithuanian state, the dominant religion was Catholicism, but the religion of all the Eastern part of it was Orthodoxy. And the Catholic part was trying to impose Catholicism more on the Eastern part. And there was this huge rebellion, possibly driven by personal motives, of a Cossack, Cossack leader, becomes the Cossack leader, the Hetman, named uh, Khmelnytsky. Different, you say, I say it in the Polish way. There's a Ukrainian way that's more like Kralitsky. He's a hero in Ukraine, he's a villain in Poland, and he's doubly a villain to Polish Jews. Because that, when that war broke out, the main fighting was Polish versus Cossack versus Ukrainian versus Polish Lithuanian. But caught in the crossfire were all these Jewish communities, which were mostly defenseless which did not have fighting men, which are not allowed to have fighting men, uh, which Jews, Jews weren't supposed to bear arms legally, and they were decimated. There were extraordinary atrocities. There was extraordinary, um, kind of probably the worst bloodshed before before World War One, certainly, because there were terrible massacres before World War One. But this is the one event that kind of stood out in people's minds for hundreds of years as to the great tra- catastrophe, this rebellion, 1648, 1649, the, the main book written about it. Uh, has a very evocative title. I have it right behind me. It's The Abyss of Despair by Nathan Hanover. And he describes just the atrocities committed against the civilian Jewish population. and, And it created... But that didn't... That wasn't a constant. That was a real kind of eruption of violence. And there were moments later. But that was the big devastating moment up to the 20th century. There were others. There were pogroms. There were local things. There were the Haidemachs. There are other wars in which Jews were were caught in the crossfires, but nothing on that scale.
0: Well, I I hate to skip ahead so so <laughs> to mm-hmm. so much, um, but that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to skip ahead to World War II. So we're going to go. We're going to blow right go. past World War One, which
1: started in Eastern Europe. It did start in Eastern Europe? Yeah, a spot in Eastern Europe in a, in a in a forgotten way.
0: Well, actually, well, you know what? What's I think if there's one thing people should know, what do you think one thing people should know about World War I in Eastern Europe that most people don't know?
1: That's easy. I think that Eastern that World War One was fought in Eastern Europe as well as Western Europe. But there's a whole Eastern Front that was quite bloody, quite spectacular, quite difficult, quite interesting, and maybe more important than the West. I mean, East. If, if you're a... This is the War Books podcast. There's so much about the Western Front on the Western Front, is so much dominant in our imagination of World War I. The, the Somme, the trenches, the forest, um, that's, that's what our, the picture of World War I is, you know, a, a, a ditch in Belgium, basically. But there's a whole other war in the East. And in the history of the war and the history of the world, that's what ends the Russian Empire, that war, the Eastern War. Russian defeat there. That's what ends the Austro-Hungarian Empire, even though no one invades Austro-Hungary. Not, no no foreign soldiers step on Austro-Hungarian soil, but they get exhausted, depleted completely by that war and by the war of Italy. But um, there's also another front people don't think about. And, and actually, there's a whole other conflict in, in in the Balkans that actually, academically, that's what I used to write about was the, the war in Macedonia. Kind of interesting. Uh, and just to to put that beat out there that's a very interesting conflict very interesting um very important and very different and that turns into a longer war Polish Bolshevik war Afterwards, you have wars that of like massive cavalry charges and, and 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 a front that moves hundreds of miles one way hundreds of miles back back and forth big movements massive casualties a more dynamic war but a war between kind of two boxers that are that are that are expending all the kind of everyone loses in the East. This is between Macedonia and who? Well, there's a Macedonian front actually. So, um, out in, in Macedonia, Northern Greece, modern Macedonia, uh, the British and French are, are fighting the, uh, and Serbians exiled Serbian army that gets driven out of Serbia and has this incredible odyssey. And then joins up with the French with the allies fights the, uh, Mostly the Bulgarians. And uh yeah. And there's a long stalemate there. And malaria becomes the big big uh, victor. Everyone starts getting sick. And I wrote about I, I should, academically, that's why I, I wrote about that front. Very forgotten front, the Macedonian front. So Macedonia's I not like participating, it. it's in Macedonia. But completely forgotten. forgotten, right? Like you Yeah. People know what World War One is. There's a whole other World War One. On the east, and that's it. And We will move to World War Two. Well,
0: well, thank you for uh, for bringing that up, because you know I could. I'm actually I'll probably Google when we're done with this. I'll probably Google all about it. Um, but I want to get to World War Two because uh, I want you to t- I want to, you to tell the story of your family a little bit because this was, as you said, a personal book for you. You know, maybe could you just, in terms of World War Two what, what was your family's experience in first, you know, who were they, where did they live in, and, and what was their World War II experience?
1: So I have two sides to my family. It's four sides, but um, there's a, a, a Jewish side and a, and a not Jewish side. And I'll talk mostly about the Jewish side. The, uh, the Polish side, although had, you know, very, the two grandmothers who were, who were Polish Catholics, I should know very little about what happened to one of them. Was from uh, Western Poland. The other one uh, was from Vilnius, and had uh, had sisters. And one one ended up in the Soviet Union, and one ended up being a forced laborer. But they mostly still, one one I think worked in, in in Germany. One one stayed in Vilnius. One, one in the Soviet Union. So they had their own difficult war as Polish women. But uh, the Jewish side of the family was pretty big. As to my two grandfathers, both kind of in um both in Warsaw at the start of the war both of them kind of the, the working class sort of a real ghetto in warsaw before the war but the kind of working class slums of or or neighborhoods of warsaw and there's an extended family too so um in writing the book I drew on on a little more than just the grandfather's experiences but so my my family's the part of my family that survived the war which obviously I'm descended from survived by going East very soon in the war and uh, by living in the Soviet Union. But my actual grandfathers fought one fought in the September campaign. I don't know if I should ex- how much World War II I should explain.
0: Well, when you say September campaign, what yeah. do
1: you mean? So World War II, the fighting part of World War II, European part of World War II starts September 1st, 1939, when Germany, Nazi Germany, invades Poland. And that's and that invasion triggers the British and French declaration of war on on Germany and then then you're off to the races. But so for for about four four weeks or so, the Germans are invading and conquering Poland. Uh, right that first day, it was beautiful, everyone remembers it. it as a, a beautiful, gorgeous summer. I think have the same memories of World War I, which starts in the summer too, a little earlier, that there's this incredible, beautiful summer that had kind of the last summer of peace. And then war breaks out. on September 1st, all Polish men are called up into the army. My mom's dad actually fought in it, was captured. And my dad's dad kept going east, trying to get to his rendezvous point uh, as the as the Polish army is being moved, pushed east very quickly. They never reached it because in, on September seventeenth, seventeen days later, the Soviet Union invades Poland from the from the east because of a secret agreement, the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, uh, to essentially partition Poland again. That they won't stop the Germans, won't stop the Nazis, and they will in fact take their own cordon sanitaire of. Poland, they, they they wait till most of the fighting do, is done. And for reasons that are a little unclear, they don't, they actually have to fight the Polish army that's now being caught from two sides. They have to fight it somewhat. It's, it's a pretty broken force by then. And at that point, it has no chance. So my other grandfather is trying to, to reach his unit. But by the 17th, he's just in Soviet territory. The grandfather who was in German captivity actually ran away, got out. Of some kind of very temporary, you know, POW encampment, got back to Warsaw and alerted, told his family, like, we have to go east, and most of, and and some of them said yes, and some of them said no. I that that doesn't sound reasonable. We can we can sit this out. I uh, had a cousin who had worked in in Vienna, and who had been in Warsaw during the German occupation of 1917. You have to remember that twenty still were twenty years before. People who live in Warsaw had been under German occupation in World War One. So I mentioned it before. And they acted really well. The the memory of the German occupation of World War One was Germans paid for cash for everything. They didn't loot. They had blackouts and martial law, but they were a, a very behaved, well-behaved, very professional army that didn't really commit atrocities, especially behind enemy lines, and that respected civilians and you know. We can do that again 20 years later how much could have changed and to run away to go to the soviet union which had just declared war on this, on poland which was you know, it was a pretty scary place and a pretty difficult place to live was pretty daunting so i had relatives who just said no but my actual my actual grandfather then went and took part of his family to minsk first to to Białostok, which was just over the the new border and then to minsk so, so Soviet Belarus, where they were from thirty nine to to forty one,
0: and so you write one of the things in Eastern Europe. So, when we think of the Holocaust, um, like Auschwitz comes to mind, you know, concentration camps, um, which obviously is is a, a very big and important part of the Holocaust. But you write that this is actually a much more intimate Holocaust for people in Eastern Europe in that people would be shot in the streets. Um, people would be, you know, gunned down in, in ditches individually. Talk about the more, more intimate experience that that people suffered through Jews suffered through
1: in Eastern Europe in the Holocaust. Yeah. I think Auschwitz has become very much kind of the synecdoche of the Holocaust as a whole for, for, us for, for americans for the west and i think i mean the one is that it's the largest concentration camp the other is that it that's how most western jews most western jews weren't, weren't shot where they lived they were um rounded up by by collaboration forces and shipped somewhere far away shipped somewhere scary um and an auschwitz she had family from from that town distant family from that town uh, had great railway junctions, and you could you could ship people, you could transport people from all over Europe there. But in Eastern Europe itself, where most of the Jews lived, most of the Jews who who were who lived in Europe just period lived in Eastern Europe, didn't far Eastern Europe, and most of the Jews were killed were killed in Eastern Europe. The concentration camps played a role, but only part only a partial role. There was a much wider scope of killing. And it really started in 1941. It started the the Holocaust as we know it, as we think of it, gets gets ramped up, goes to high gear, when Germany breaks the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact and invades the Soviet Union. Double-cross, Hitler double-crosses Stalin, June 22nd, 1941, sneak attack on the Soviet Union. Spectacular gains. For a few months, incredible kind of German progress and then then stalls out. And then that moment, right from the start of that invasion, and then especially as the invasion stalls, and as, as the hunt for what what the kind of Nazis see as communist collaborationists or, or the Jewish menace behind behind their lines now, they start uh killing Jews en masse right in that first invasion, though, wherever they find them shooting them in the streets, shooting them in the squares. And it's called the, there's a French researcher who who named this the the Holocaust by bullets. So literally, and the concentration camps haven't really been instituted yet because the idea that has, they haven't quite figured out what they're going to do. The idea is we'll just just shoot Jews where we find them. And they probably shoot about 1 million, 1.5 million. It's a little hard to get precise numbers on this. Uh, the people are, are working hard on it.
0: Yeah, I've read I've read that book, and it's yeah. it's jaw dropping uh, to 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 read those stories about you know just even like children who were who would be taken to like fill in these ditches where all these people were just shot, you know, tens of thousands of people just shot, pushed into ditches, and then those ditches then covered up using child labor, and really just like what an a, an awful terrible it's just a part of the holocaust that, that i'm i'm glad you brought up in your book because it's one that that doesn't get talked about maybe as, as much as it should can you give us a sense of of the scale In i there was there was a i think it might have been warsaw but it could have actually been an entire country where after world war 2 because so many people had been exterminated by the Nazis, like 92% of the whole town mm. was gone. Give us a sense of the scale of just like, what what did like a normal town in Eastern Europe look like once
1: the Nazis had left? Yeah, I can actually, so I read a lot about um my dad's dad, well, partly in Warsaw, partly in his, in his kind of family schedule, family small town of of Zambru, which actually now my aunt lives next to. So I've been there a lot. It's a very quintessentially typical Eastern European town. Nothing super exciting about it. It's something that my grandfather's from there. It's just on the road. Just drive two hours east of Warsaw, small town. That's about 20,000 people. It was about 4,000, 8,000 back then. It's just kind of the, the family of the hometown. And World War II, they were in the Soviet zone. 39, 40, 41. And then, you know, they were close to the border. So two days into World War II. In two days, I call it World War II, but two days into the start of the Eastern Operation Barbarossa, the the German invasion of the Union. They're in German territory. And then the real terror starts. In fact, Soviet occupation had its, was difficult in some ways. But there's a, a few weeks go by, and they start rounding people up, and they start having them dig ditches. I'm actually a family of Jewish farmers, which is rare, but, and, and, and a German was so shocked. A German soldier was so shocked. He, he talked to my great grandfather, great grand uncle, I think about, he's like, what's your profession? He's like a farmer. And it's like, you lied you. And, and someone told him, "No, oh, he's actually a farmer. He's like, well, he kind of won his respect because that seemed such an un-Jewish profession. And he's like, well, you know what? Don't, don't come back to this ditch digging site tomorrow. This isn't going to be great for you because then they start, they start shooting the Jews of Zambrov. I think in October of that year, then they create a, a, a ghetto in inside the town. It's a small town. And they round up people from the countryside, from the remaining surviving Jews, men Jews. And they start doing this all over Eastern Europe, all over Eastern Poland, Belarus, Ukraine, and sm- small ish, Towns get their own ghettos, kind of walled or barbed-wired areas where Jews are crammed in, surviving Jews, and Jews from the countryside are sent. And then a few months later, or about a year later, in 1942, they start liquidating those ghettos. So they, they have death marches, They and then they march people towards uh, trains to... They've by now started building the, the network of camps and they'll shoot part of the people on site or, or in woods, and they'll load others into into trains, and then they have some survivors down clean up the remnants, and they shoot those. And then the remaining Jews that are in the countryside in the small towns, if they're alive, they're they're hiding in cellars or they're in the woods at the mercy of everybody. But by then, 80-90% of people are, are are dead by late 1942. And the and the towns. Most small towns in say kind of that Jewish heartland, which is Eastern Poland, it's now Western Ukraine, most of Belarus, a lot of Lithuania, uh, probably down into, into Northern Romania, it's Bondova. That's the kind of world of the shtetl, world of the small towns. Those most small towns were majority or plurality Jewish. It was typical for small towns. The Jewish, the countryside was Christian, Catholic or Eastern Orthodox was peasant and the towns were mixed. Towns were between 40 and 80% Jewish, small towns, especially that the kind of social division is that the, the small town activities, the trades, carpenter, tailor, grocery store owner. Those are the kind of typical jobs, small town jobs were in Jewish hands. And they're now, largely you know depopulated. There's a lot of houses up for grabs locals grab a lot of the houses. But then honestly, when the, the war comes back around the other side, so this happens in Zambrov, is that two years later, 44, the whole Red Army is coming through fighting, you know, eventually the, the Germans push the Red Army up out towards Stalingrad, out towards the Leningrad, out towards near Moscow. But then flips, and so forty four, 1944, the Russian army is going through the same area. The front turns back around. And these towns that are mostly made out of wood are mostly burnt, burnt to the ground. So Zambra went on in forty five, People went. There was just, just almost nothing. You know, the, the, on one hand, there's this wave of destruction of the Jewish community in forty two, But then in forty four, it's just caught in the crossfire of the conflict between the Wehrmacht and the Red Army. And that, the, that world of, of the country, that is such a gigantic conflict. Millions of soldiers on both sides. Those towns just get completely steamrolled and, uh, and mostly destroyed. Most of them get destroyed. So really, that's part of the... And so by 44, you're looking at 45, you're looking at, at ashes, you know, bits and pieces.
0: Well, how much do you think, just kind of thinking about the comprehensive history of uh, Eastern Europe... How much do you think World War II defines the history of, of Eastern Europe? Maybe it's just because it's it's so recent and you know it you know, not even a hundred years ago it happened, um, which is why you know we focus so much, but the scale was just you know incomprehensible. And I wonder, you know, how much you think that 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 is now tied to Eastern European identity?
1: It it's definitely important. <laughs> And probably crucial, it is the moment when the kind of older world of Eastern Europe vanishes, the world of, you know, the Jewish Europe. Although it doesn't vanish completely. So I was like to point out, people will say there are no Polish Jews left. I'm i a Polish Jew, there's some left. And there are Jews across Eastern Europe. Uh, it's not the total end. Uh, my family is a total product of World War II. There's these Jewish soldiers, one who was a partisan of Belarus, a Red Army partisan. Paratrooper fought behind enemy lines and had a very difficult war in Belarus. And the other one was the um, the Polish units attached to the Red Army. I mean, it's a complicated story, but and fought in Berlin and came back to Poland and married, married Polish women. That wouldn't have happened before World War II. So it's really like a World War II family. And at the same time, so it's it's very important. And at the same time, I'll say I think it's overemphasized from my point of view. It swallows so much of the airspace of the history writing about world war ii i think it's it's crucial and it's some of the most difficult stories in my family and i go into some of the uh, really extraordinary stuff the family that was left behind in warsaw i have testimonies from the the Ringelblum archive the the milk can archive that was buried in warsaw they're really important so it's it's I mean, it's crucial in my life but at the same time you know there's that idea of the bloodlands and I think an idea in, in contemporary history writing or history imagination, I'll say maybe not writing, that all there is in Eastern Europe is this, is this charnel house, is this world of brutality and carnage. And I think that, that drives out everything else, you know, so for my book, I, I have a chapter on World War II and I try to give it its space, but I do want people to think that there's more, that something survives the war and that there was a lot there before too. And not to have it eclipse everything that came before and came, came after. Because it is such a black hole. It is such a powerful, extraordinary, extraordinary in the sense of, you know, beyond any previous, I think, human or Western experience. It is so, so far on the extreme of, of war and how civilians were treated. But there is more Eastern Europe. There's more Eastern European life. And it's not just bloodlines. So, so my, I I, I would almost, I'm like, it's super important. And yet it is almost overemphasized.
0: That's so interesting that you say that. I had, uh, as a guest on this show, um, a historian, his name's Peter H. Wilson. And he wrote a book uh, about a 500-year history of German military warfare. Sure. And in his like seven, eight hundred page book, World War Two gets World War I and World War II get 50 pages. And I'm That's like, why did you why'd you only get 50 pages? He's like, Well, if I had my say, I would give it zero pages. But you can't Bro. write a book about German military history and not talk about World War One and World War II. But he had a similar answer as, as that you gave. Is like, you know, we we focus a lot on those conflicts and we forget about some other very important history.
1: So that's very interesting to uh, to hear you say. That's interesting. He said he's a, he's a Thirty Years War expert. Yeah. yeah. So that that that's interesting. Yeah, it's very much a military story. Yeah, there is. It sucks so much of the oxygen out of the room. It is so. And it's you know, even writing about it, you get so wrapped up. And then I am kind of like, well, at the same time. Writing a history of Eastern Europe, I don't just want this to be a history of a football that's being kicked between Hitler and Stalin. And a lot of the narratives are so driven by that, by that external history, that you lose you lose sight of the internal. So that the, striking that balance is difficult.
0: Well, kind of lastly <laughs> here, maybe we can look at history to pivot a bit towards the future. And I, I want to ask you about Ukraine, <laughs> because obviously a very relevant topic right now. But from from your perspective, from somebody who's you know written a, a history of of Eastern Europe, I'm curious what your your thoughts are right now as as it relates to the Russia Ukraine War about what maybe people are getting wrong in the West, what people are getting right in the West. Maybe your assessment right now, from a historian's angle, of the Russia Ukraine War.
1: That's a good question. <clears throat> And I wish history was more useful predictively. Because I could actually things then would have a, a direct use. So I don't have a lot of great predictive I mean, I, I think it's, it's it's so unpredictable. I, I found the whole progosion episode so shocking and I thought I knew what was going on. So let's throw out let's let's one just say history doesn't isn't well, good I'm, at prediction. But yeah. Go ahead. No, you go ahead.
0: I was just going to ask. You know, I, the relationship between Ukraine and the rest of Eastern Europe is something that I find I really don't know so much about, and I wonder how much that uh, that might color right now the war and and, and how you see things progressing, because it doesn't doesn't seem like there's like one Eastern European identity, and you know I, I'm I'm just I'm curious uh, on your thoughts.
1: It's interesting how that's evolved. I think people aren't at all aware of the kind of of the, you know, so so world so during World War II, there were many wars inside of World War II. Wars fought between local groups (coughs) under the umbrella of the larger allied allied axis conflict. People might know about Yugoslavia and that there was fighting between. Tito's partisans, communist partisans, and local royalists, Chetniks, Serbian royalists, kind of not quite fascists, but on that side, Croatian fascists, and then Muslim groups, that there was a civil war kind of happening underneath the, 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 the dome of German-Italian occupation. Something similar was happening in the Polish-Ukrainian borderlands. Brutal conflict. Brutal ethnic cleansing. Of Ukrainians by Poles and Poles by Ukrainians. There's an intermixed borderland that, was, uh, that belonged to Poland before World War II. But was Ukrainian majority, the local majority was Ukrainian. But the economic powers and the political powers is mostly Polish. And Ukrainian nationalists tried to drive out the Poles and Jews. Uh, and the Polish partisans would try to drive out the Ukrainians and Jews. Uh, And just brutal fighting in Volhynia, place I don't think people have heard about, but is once Eastern Poland, now Western Ukraine, and then and Podkarpackie. Terrible fighting level of villages, you know, like neighbor on neighbor. Ukrainian squads rounding up Polish villagers, killing them all, Uh, and reprisal killings of the same the Poles on Ukrainians. There, a lot of bitterness left after that. A lot of memory, like just a couple of years ago, it's a wave of bringing up bloody Volhynia is, is the term in Poland of of trying to commemorate this and and explore it and trying to get get it, you know commemorate as much as possible, make it a pillar of memory politics on the Polish side. On the Ukrainian side, those nationalist groups are this pillar of Ukrainian resist, of Ukrainian resistance against Soviet power of trying to recreate a Ukrainian state and it's also polish domination but a little bit ambiguous how they treat some of those leaders so a lot so those real source of tension, and that that banished mostly with this war so you would say like well obviously those those relations are going to be bad you know that's a, that well is poisoned no poland is the biggest supporter of ukraine now they have a I'm shared about enemy. to say that they I'm have incredible saying. social solidarity, incredible out- outpouring of help, not the level of government, but the level of people. People just like millions of Ukrainians coming at the, in the start of the war. Including my family was hosting Ukrainian families. And um, in the light of a bigger enemy, mm-hmm. those past conflicts really, really have been shunted aside and for, not for, honestly forgotten, but the de-emphasized. And there is in much of Eastern Europe a pretty united front against Russia. But then part of Eastern Europe, especially Hungary, Serbia, there's an absolutely a unit kind of a mini united front in favor of Russia. So
0: Yeah, that's yeah. interesting. I forget often that those governments exist in 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 Hungary and um, in Serbia. Um Hungary uh-huh. specifically, because Viktor Orban, of course. Uh, but I think of Belarus as like the kind of the that's outlier, true. of course, because you know it's like they've got Europe's last dictator, isn't that there? <laughs> the, well, the guy who's in charge there? I would say Putin.
1: I think Putin. I think yeah. Right? You know, there's that ambiguous thing. Two. Where is is Russia? I'm just talking to a Russian journalist about this. But yeah, yeah, that's a that's a fascinating crux, though, also because historically, Belarusians and Ukrainians have excellent relations. And really see each other as both, as as kind of similar and as like equally hard done by by Russians on one hand and actually poles by the other. So they there's I think huge reluctance to to commit. I mean Lukashenko knows that'd be incredibly unpopular to actually send like Russian soldiers, but at the same time, who's who's holding whose puppet strings? I think it's actually changing, but you have this history that, that can be determinative, but it can also flip on a, on a dime.
0: Yeah. Well, Jacob, this has been a, a wonderful interview. We've gone over our time. I could keep talking to you. We could do a whole separate episode on world war one, because I feel, I feel bad now that we didn't give it the, the attention maybe it deserves, I mean, I appreciate yeah. it. Yeah.
1: World war two well, for my family. There's a lot of like really interesting exciting World War II history which isn't true of World War one I, I just wanted to give it a plug there's yeah you know forget the psalm look at the look at the siege of it's a great book about that if people want that's a that's some exciting war history if you go forward
0: well I had actually I had a a fiction author his name's Alexander Heman. oh and, interesting. Uh, he, yeah he he recently wrote a book about um World War one starting yeah. in bosnia but it goes east instead mm-hmm. of going west because you know usually in our our western history the only time you hear about eastern europe really is um Franz ferdinand being assassinated and then all of a sudden we're in france and his novel was very fascinating i thought because instead of going west uh, you go east so luckily mm-hmm. it, it seems like people are paying a little bit more attention
1: and they go to sure galicia things. they go to that they go to those like eastern trenches that i find kind of interesting in the, in the mountains yeah. that are, that's great stuff Yeah.
0: Well, Jacob Mikanowski, goodbye, Eastern Europe, uh, an intimate history of a forgotten land, or I'm sorry, of a divided land. (laughs)
1: Not not a bad bad.
0: (laughs) Go buy a coffee, go check it out from your library. Um, What a fascinating story. And um, Jacob, thank you so much for your time today.
1: Well, thank you so much. It's been been
0: fantastic. Thank you, AJ.